Hello, and welcome to Talking and Shull, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. I'm really excited that we're back together after the Chagim. This month, our first topic is Covered Up, a documentary about wearing a wig by director Rachel Elitzur. We will be discussing the film and speaking with Rachel in a little bit. For our second segment, we're talking about recently a recent episode of This American Life that featured a segment about the Chabad community in Crown Heights in a not-so-flattering way and what the backlash looked like to that. Our first segment, Sahava, do you want to take it away? Sure. So Covered Up, or Masachet Pe'ah in Hebrew, is a new documentary by Israeli director Rachel Elitzur and produced by Avigail Sperber. The film focuses on Rachel's own personal experience, continuing to cover her hair with the wig after her divorce and her desire to take off the wig, even though both her Haredi family and community disapprove of that. This film had its U.S. debut last month at the Margaret Mead Film Festival in New York, and we were lucky enough to be able to get a look. How did you guys think about this movie? It was interesting for me as a hair coverer, but neither of you is a hair coverer. And I'm interested to see how our reactions overlap or don't to this movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, it felt, it felt like a peek into another world because a lot of the dialogue is really between Rachel and her family or close friends. Um, it, the, the conversations felt very intimate um and though her father was really hesitant about being interviewed other family members and friends and community members seemed pretty comfortable actually sharing their perspectives and opinions um and i think also as somebody not very familiar with um the world of covering your hair it was interesting to think about what what the experience of somebody who is divorced must be. So it, it was just a unique perspective that I hadn't considered um, and done very, um, yeah, very intimately and kind. I also really appreciated, I think it was just the right length. It was about 50 something minutes long. And I think if it had gone on too much longer, it would have dragged. But but it felt it felt just right to explore, but not drag. Yeah, I totally agree. I was super skeptical going into this film, and I loved it. I thought it was really a thoughtful and surprising look at covering your hair. It's very specific. Like, it's about a woman who is divorced and has been wearing a wig and wants to, and is exploring the idea of not wearing a wig now that she's divorced and kind of sorting through what that means to her and her family and her community. But I just thought it was really, the specificity was nice and very, it allowed it to be thoughtful without kind of trying, it didn't feel like it was trying to make a big statement about covering one's hair. Like one of the things that she talks about in the film is that like if she gets married again, she will probably wear a wig again and she wants to get married again so it's not like a forever thing but she's also like I'm divorced this is a symbol of being married I'm not married and I find it really uncomfortable something about it is really like both kind of physically and emotionally 
painful and uncomfortable to her. And I just like appreciated the thoughtful honesty that she brought to it because I think that that is, I don't know, a lot of times conversations about modesty have a, what I think is ultimately like a dishonest tone about like how it makes things like more special and sexy in some ways, which is like, maybe that's true for some people, maybe it's not. But like once you're divorced, the whole thing is moot, right? Like you're not, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work in this, that whole line of reasoning doesn't work in the same way. Um, and I appreciated that the film didn't try and do that. So what did you think? Yeah, it's very free of apologetics, even while it's not rejecting the idea of hair covering. Yeah, it's interesting because I do think the movie runs on two tracks. So there's the track of Rachel's personal story where she is recently divorced and exploring how to make that transition for herself and what that should literally look like. And then there's this other track where she's interviewing friends, relatives, people who are part of her Haredi community about their experience. And it seems that all, as far as I can tell, of those people are currently married. Um, And there's this track on which that's going where it's starting to cover my hair was really hard or, you know, years into my marriage, this is still a struggle or um, I have difficult memories of my wedding day because it's also the day I started doing this or people... um, you know, from her grandmother's generation saying, I don't get the wigs that these girls wear today. They look just like regular hair. What's the point of wearing a wig? How is this any more modest than not wearing a wig? And and so there's this broader community commentary on the experience of hair covering with the wig in general. And then there's the track on which Rachel is dealing with her own wig wearing, which, as you said, Tamar, she's clearly planning on putting a wig back on if and when she does get remarried. So this isn't about like the larger if it's about how it works in her situation. I wasn't sure whether that was a feature or a bug. Like I wasn't sure whether the movie was sure which version of the conversation it wanted to have. And maybe it's not a bug because those things really are jumbled up in people's experiences and in her experience, presumably. Um, But I did think it it lacked a little bit of focus between those two stories. I see that, but I also felt what was nice about it was that it, it did show like how those two things go together and how the way that people think about hair covering is really mixed up with like so many other things about their like visions of themselves and their visions of what it is to be attractive and their visions of like symbols of availability for partnership like something that didn't really come up in this film but that I thought would was that if you see some well it kind of did at one point but not in the way that I thought it would if you see someone who's wearing a wig then you assume that they're not single and so that like makes it harder for someone who is covering their hair after marriage, after divorce, to convey their availability if they are interested in getting remarried. And there is a scene where um, Rachel and a friend of hers are in a coffee shop, and I, it was unclear exactly how this happened, but like a shadchan like showed up and started talking to her friend, a matchmaker, right. And didn't talk to Rachel. And afterwards, she was like, she didn't talk to me because I was wearing a wig. Which, like, I'm confused about, like, what? <laughs> How did the Shadokhan, like, hone in on her friend? But 
yes, like she was in that situation, not, um, not understood to be a single person. And the, the reverse seemed to be more of a concern to people. People were like, won't, aren't there going to be men who will not be interested in dating you because you are not, um, covering your hair but if you do not cover your hair after a divorce or yeah if you do not cover your hair after a divorce um which I also thought was interesting one thing that I felt like was kind of like unexplored and that surprised me in this film was that like a wig doesn't need to be the only option for covering your hair like they talk a little bit about wearing a mitpacha which is like a scarf but she doesn't seem to like wearing a meat packet is not uh an option that she seems to seriously consider which i was surprised by what did you make of that i thought it was interesting that the movie did focus on wig wearing when she was talking to other people but i wasn't surprised that it wasn't something that she considered for herself um just because i think that how people cover their hair is very dictated by community norms. Um, And I think that in a lot of communities and from the movie, it seems like in her community, the standard for women in her age bracket is wigs and that mitpachot, headscarves might be uh, the choice for maybe um, a different segment of Israeli society, what in America might be modern Orthodox or in Israel might be the Dati Le'umi national religious community, um, nationalist religious community. Um, But that it's... Or older people, right? Her grandmother uses a headscarf. Yeah, or her grandmother, I think, wears a beret. Um, Oh, right. But also there are different kinds of headscarf, right? So like a a certain segment of the Hasidic community might wear a scarf with padding underneath that suggests but is not your hair. Um, All of these things are very specific and communally determined. And so it doesn't seem like it's... I think there might be a scene in which she's wearing a headscarf, but it's like an around the house messy kind of thing. It's like the head covering equivalent of sweatpants. Right. um, Where... You know, I wear a headscarf as my primary mode of hair covering. So it's a different set of norms for me. Um, But that's, I think, a very community thing. It is interesting that she didn't choose to explore other options in terms of other people's experience of hair covering, though, when she was talking to other people about their wigs. Right. I think there was another sort of layer in the movie that didn't get explored very deeply, but that I was curious about, which was there seemed to be a sentiment within her family that both her divorce and then her decision to uncover her hair had an impact on the rest of the family, that they were viewed a certain way in their community because this had happened to their daughter. Um, I think but but also that they that they had a lot of feelings. I mean, the mother expresses a lot of pain over her daughter's divorce. Um, and then other family members say, you know, now that you've uncovered your hair, people view us this way and view you as more um, lenient. Um, and that I, I think that created for me a lot of sympathy for this character and the way in which she is stuck either wanting to uncover her hair but worried about will I find a partner and how will this impact my family but also ready to move on from her divorce 
it's, I don't know. Did, did you guys have a sense for that stuckness that she was in? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that her parents have different objections than each other. And I'm interested to ask her a little mm. bit about that. But yeah, I think that on the one hand, there's the fear that if somebody takes a visible leniency, then how does that reflect on the religiosity of the family? Like any visible leniency, like this is kind of the keeping kosher equivalent of, um, I don't think quite, maybe not quite as extreme as this, but as starting to eat dairy out, meaning the equivalent of like not keeping stringent kosher in a certain way or whatever. It's a very visible um, change in practice. So that reflects on the family. But I think also there's a sense of real guilt and regret on the part of her parents because in her community the parents are so involved in introducing the person that you might marry that they've selected this person as a likely and appropriate match for you and then you can meet them and have dates and decide whether that seems right but her parents I think feel some guilt and regret and that they put her in a position that ultimately was painful that that's sorrow and I I don't want to um dismiss her mother's feelings as just like being embarrassed that her daughter's divorced. I think that there is something big here that I failed my child in a way that's very difficult for them to experience and that her uncovering her hair and going back to being visibly unmarried is also a real symbol of their failure here. I don't know if I will feel comfortable asking Rachel this, but I read some of the conversations about her ex-husband as lightly insinuating that he was abusive or kind of skirting abuse. So I wondered if that was part of her mother's guilt about it, the way that her mother talked about it. I mean, who knows? Maybe just like it's totally conceivable that she could have that feeling of guilt just because it was a marriage that didn't work out. But some of the way um, that her ex-husband was discussed made me think that there might have been some some abuse, uh, physical or emotional. And I did, I did also wonder if like, you know, (laughs) getting out of an abusive relationship, is there something symbolic you can do to separate yourself from that? Um, and to kind of indicate that that some kind of distancing of oneself from that, um, experience, I don't know. I may have been reading something else into it, but I, I felt, I mean, I thought that the the movie took great pains to not kind of like go inappropriately into, you know, what was obviously a private breakup. But I did wonder like a, about some comments. It seemed to me a little like maybe something, something violent happened. And that makes particularly the mother's feelings of shame a whole in a different I want to go back for a second to Marta something you said earlier which is that the movie doesn't spend a lot of time on the issue that continuing to cover your hair might really hamper other people knowing that you're single and might want to date Mm. Um, because I think that that's actually a really significant element of the movie but like you said maybe for reasons that you're not expecting And that's because um, it's instrumental in the halachic, the Jewish legal basis for her ability to seriously consider uncovering her hair. Right. So 
She goes to speak to a rabbi, um, Rabbi Danielle Sperber, who interestingly is not a rabbi in the Haredi community. He teaches academic Talmud. He's the major halachic authority behind partnership minyanim, which are sort of a liberal trend within orthodoxy. So I thought it was interesting that he was the rabbi that she was talking to in the movie. I very much doubted that her father would accept his ruling. I wondered if she saw him because she thought that he would be more lenient to her. Yeah, yeah. I wondered that as well. But interestingly, he was not like, yeah, absolutely. You do what you need to do, right? That's not the reaction she got. It's, well, there has been some discussion among rabbinic authorities that while one should continue to cover one's hair after a divorce, one might uncover their hair if it is hindering their ability to remarry. Is that happening with you in like this very suggestive way? And the answer is, like, not really in the sense that it's a marker of leniency in practice that makes her a less attractive marriage candidate to potential matches. And any guy she's going to be set up with Mm -hmm. by a matchmaker is going to get the lowdown, including the fact that she's been married before. So it's not as though this is a guy that's like going to see her in a coffee shop and ask her out because he thinks he's single. That's not how introductions seem to happen in her community. So that's kind of moot until she has that encounter that you described with the Shadchan who's talking to her friend And that matchmaker does not look at her at all and doesn't offer her any suggestions of guys that she might get set up with because she's apparently married. Um, And that sort of gives her the opening like, oh, there is a reason that this might be getting in my way. Okay, well, I can use that basis. And this really like the difficulty of that emotionally really resonated with me because when you make your Jewish decisions in this like legally bound way, your own motivations are not a sufficient reason for things a lot of the time. And her own motivation actually has nothing to do with this reasoning, but this is the acceptable reasoning. And so she needs to find ways to sort of shoehorn her situation into reasoning that will be acceptable within the Jewish legal system, even though that isn't what she wants. And that's something that in big and small ways I live with all the time. So that really resonated with me. And just watching her do that was really interesting. But then didn't she doesn't do I mean, I guess spoilers, but like, even though what happens is the rabbi doesn't say like, this is okay. In fact, he says, actually, it's not okay for to do it for the reason that you're saying you want to do it. And then she does it. (laughs) And it seems like for her, she ultimately like, and, and she doesn't, I did not feel like she was saying, like, I did it for this reason, which is halakhically acceptable by my understanding of this thing. She basically comes down to saying, like, I just can't do this anymore. And I actually think the the loveliest part of the film is when she goes and gets her hair cut and kind of, like, blow-dried and styled um, by a secular woman. And they have this, like, really lovely emotional honest conversation about hair and what it means and um what it means to them and and the you know the woman who's cutting our hair says like I just love hair I just think it gives people so much personality and she you know that's her job but also like you feel her trying to connect with this woman who she doesn't have a lot in common with and like they are able to connect in this way that feels particularly kind because of the kind of 
denial of the importance of her feelings that Rachel has been getting from so many people in her community. And yeah, I mean, I just thought it's hard because I really don't want to be the person who's like, I like the movies about Haredi people when they like do not Haredi things (laughs) because that's not, you know, everyone should live and act how they, how they feel comfortable is kind of how I, how I feel. But, um, but I did find like that moment was was the most powerful for me. And I also thought that like what the film did was present us with this like, this is the situation that Rachel is in. This is why it's very difficult for her. She has a decision to make. And then ultimately she makes a decision that like does make some people in her life unhappy. It makes her feel more comfortable. And, you know, this is a, a conundrum and this is how she dealt with it. And like, I guess that's the the part of the specificity that I appreciated was I didn't feel like it was like making a big pronouncement for like what other people should do. But I also appreciated that it was like Rachel didn't end the film by being like, well, this really sucks and it makes really, really uncomfortable in a lot of different ways. But like, oh, well, that's halacha. You know, that would be an acceptable response, but it also would be narratively very unsatisfying, I think. Well, I'll be curious to hear her un, her telling us how she came to this decision because it sounds to me Zahava like what you're saying is she actually found an example in her life of the way that um, having her hair covering um, was getting in the way of making a match and therefore this was halachically permissible whereas Tamar you're saying that um she went ahead and did it, even though she didn't have any examples of what the rabbi was was saying would be permissible. I would say more that, like, I guess I didn't see the trajectory the way that Zahava did of, like, the rabbi said, if this was happening, then you could do it. But she said at that point, that's not why I want to do it. And he said, then you can't. Mm-hmm. And then later... It is true that the Shah Khan approached her friend and not her. It, it may be that she was then like, oh, now that this has happened, I can I can do what I want to do. But she didn't say that explicitly. Right. The film. I didn't read it that way, but I don't think Zahava's wrong to read it that way. I just like I didn't read it that way. OK, we are now joined by. Filmmaker Rachel Elitzur, who is being very gracious and speaking with us very late at night for her because she's joining us from Israel. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us. Thank you. You're having me. Thank you. It's not so late. It's it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's about ten thirty p.m. It's it's later than your average press call. It's fine. So you watch so, my film. Yes. Yeah, we've been talking about our reactions and all really appreciated the opportunity to watch it. So thank you so much. Thank you. So this film explores your feelings about continuing to wear a wig or taking it off after your divorce. But I'm wondering if we could back up a little bit in time and ask how you felt about covering your hair when you first got married. Were you conflicted about it before your divorce? After I engaged, uh, I went to the um, uh, wig uh, uh, dresser. I don't know how to say, um, mm-hmm. like designer wigs or something like this. And I was very young, like 20. 
and it's very big uh, buy buy uh, yeah um, because after the wedding dress you put it back after the wedding mm-hmm. so the the biggest buy it's the wig mm-hmm. because it's very expensive but you don't know anything about it you, you just need to do it after your wedding after you, you get married so I came to the um, uh, wig um, seller and sat there and and she put it on me on my covering my head and it was very um, long and blonde and I'm not blonde and she said no don't worry the color could be changed and everything gonna be okay and I I sat there and uh, thinking it's nice it's beautiful it's like customer and you feel like uh, I don't know little girl you uh, she put the playing the, dress up yeah uh, and I didn't think and um, nothing me- meaning, nothing deeper than if, if it's nice, it's not nice, it's beautiful, it's not, nothing be- uh, behind that. So it wasn't a conflict. I remember because I um, came from a very conservative family and I learned in Besyankev, um, uh, it's a school for religious, very religious, ultra-orthodox girls. Uh, and the education was, you need to covering your head with short uh, wigs, not, not long. And my um, husband wanted me to covering my head with a very beautiful wig. And it's unaccepted so mm. I think maybe it's it was a conflict but we learned uh, the kosher the kosher wife does what her husband wants so I did what he wants what he wanted and can you say more about why a short wig is preferable to a long wig I guess maybe maybe men look more after girls with long hair or wig more than short. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's so more even, modest. Right. Even the covering that is for modesty, there are certain degrees of modesty within wigs. Oh, it's modesty in the modesty. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, Allah, the, Allah has a, Jewish law said you need to cover your head. Doesn't matter with with what, what with you know it could be a ticha, it could be a um, whatever you want. We are covering our head with uh, wigs. Right. I'm curious about how you came to decide to make the film. It's such a it tells such a personal story and includes a lot of people in your family. How did you decide to do something that would be very public about something that had been very private to you. When I started to, to think about this idea, 
I didn't think I'm gonna be on the front, uh, the main character in this film. I I I did want to um, to make film about wigs, about uh, ultra orthodox women covering uh, uh, them head after uh, the wedding. Um, Back time, I, I, I still was a uh, marriage, so I didn't think to take it off or something. Uh, and during my, uh, um, the idea came up during my study. And a little bit, uh, time after this, I um, divorced. So it came bit by bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was good for me because I think if you said to me then you're going to be like this, I didn't agree. The film spends a lot of time in your conversations with your parents. And both your parents are unhappy about the idea that you might take off your wig. But it feels like they have somewhat different um reasons why or different perspectives on it and I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about that okay um, I start with um, uh, I grew up in very Haredish family very conservative and I didn't watch any movies when I was a child uh, not television not movies not radio or newspaper anything and so I just read books, uh, Haredish books, and wrote a lot of story and poetry. And after this, I lo- looked for a framework to become a professional writer, and I didn't find because it's not uh, exist. And so after I got married, I. Uh, Ask permission for my husband. I want to go Male film school. It's not ultra orthodox, but it's religious uh, school. And he went to his rabbi and asked him. And the rabbi say, "Okay, it's for you know uh, income." Uh, so I started to learn there. And when I uh, so the um, my father. Um, he was an, against all the all the the package, you know, mm-hmm. me doing and uh, making film, watch films, uh, everything connected with that. And my mom, she's more liberal, but she cares about what people, what other people say about us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's issue, you know. Um, for everyone, everyone deal with it. What people say, uh, what people gonna say, and uh, uh, what different it will make. Um, I have, I'm I'm the oldest, and I have seven siblings, and my brother and sister uh, needed to find a match, and it's really delicate in our community. So she afraid of, 
And my father doesn't care about this at all because all that matter to him it's the halacha, the Jewish law, and what the Torah says, and what you should do, and that's it. Did your siblings say anything to you um, about film school, about the film, expressing their concerns about making matches? They all uh, been suspicious about the, uh, the film uh, because we really used to the films is not okay. Uh, not modest and men and women together and touch each other and all this stuff. And they, um, they worried about me, what I'm going to do with that. Um, but after they, they saw my, uh, they watched my films, they saw, okay, it's fine. You can, it's like, uh, the, 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 move, the film, it's like a tool. You, you can choose what you want to put on him, on it, mm-hmm. right? So it's like a switch. They, they make a switch, made a switch. One of your sisters is actually in the film. You don't show her face in the movie, but she is. Her husband didn't agree. Yeah, she, uh-huh. she okay. really wanted, but. Her husband, the friend about, uh, they was like bride and the, uh, uh, I want to say, Hassan, Hassan, I don't know. Groom. They didn't uh, marry yet this time, but if afraid of what next, what's going to be next, what about the children will come, uh, the, the, the school uh, won't accept them and all this stuff. So it, it was very afraid. So I, this is a compromise. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I assume that your sister didn't want her face shown. It's interesting that that's the reason. But I'm curious why you chose to put her portion of the story in the movie because she is engaged during the movie and is shopping for her own first wig. And so the movie also shows sort of the other side of this experience where she is having the personal challenge of putting on a wig for the first time. It doesn't look like me. Is this the right look? How do I feel about it? It's a very difficult thing for her also. But I'm interested in the decision to show that other side of the story through your sister. I filmed two brides before my sister. Um, My my sister uh, got married late she was 27. It's very late for us. Uh, and I think two brides before. And I said to her, please engage. Uh, I want to film you because you are very good uh, character. And okay, I didn't take uh, her husband uh, in this count. But um, what I really wanted to show is... Um, First of all, it's uh, when you uh, say, look how hard is this. So the action I did, it's, it's more brave, I think. And the other uh, side, I wanted to show how was it for me when I was a bride and uh, went to shop uh, a week. But it wasn't exactly like that, like I said to you in the first conversation. I 
I took it very easy and my sister took it hard. Yeah. I'm curious about how much of your desire to take off the wig was because it was uncomfortable. Like physically it was uncomfortable versus like it didn't feel like kind of who you were in that moment. Because it, sometimes in the film it seemed like you talked about physically it being uncomfortable and sometimes it seemed to be more about more kind of about feelings of where you are in the community and being seen as available or not available for marriage? I think most of it, it's mentally because every day I, uh, covering my head with that covered. Um, it's like, I'm, I'm still married. I'm still connect with this guy and I don't want to connect him and I have nothing to do with them. And it bothered me, uh, like mentally and um, n- not physically. Physically, it's not comfortable, of course, but it wasn't this exactly. Mm. So the moment it took it off, it's like, now I'm divorced. Now I'm mm-hmm. really divorced. Like, take off uh, the, the rings. It's exactly the same thing. I, I don't know what, uh, when you came to um, uh, the court, the Jewish court, and, and the, the rabbi said, uh, take off your ring. It's, I, I think it's supposed to be the same because it's a sign uh, for a woman. She married, she connect to this guy and she uh, forbidden for all the other guys. So I felt free, free for me, for my uh, ex-husband. Thank you so much for your time, Rachel. This has been really wonderful. Thank you. If people are looking for your work online, where can they find you on social media or where can they find um, information about your films? Um, I have a page on Facebook but uh, I have no uh, English name for it. It's just Hebrew. I can give you uh, my uh, user username from for Facebook and Instagram, and Twitter, whatever you want. I'm all in. Great. <laughs> Great. We can include all of the information for Rachel's social media accounts in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tamar and Zava and Mimi. I have one more thing that I wanted to say about um, about the film that I didn't feel like Rachel needed to respond to, but something that I was thinking about when I was watching the film is the the wigs that she is talking about are very specific like it's a very specific kind of wig and if you've spent a lot of time in the orthodox community there's like styles of wigs that you see over and over again and there's not that many that deviate from the like five or six types that you would normally see Zahava do you feel like that tracks more or less yeah and I think that's really interesting because I have done because I know that like there's like wig culture in the world. Like there's like a billion kinds of wigs 
and like and particularly in the black community like lace front wigs are like a big deal people spend a lot of money on them and they look incredible like you absolutely cannot tell it's a wig where it's like i can see someone walking down the street and know it's a shaitel from like a block away and it's like a lace front i have been shocked when people have told me that they are wearing <laughs> lace fronts mm-hmm. and so it's surprising to me that that hasn't taken off more in the orthodox community and i actually read an article about how um which i'll link to in show notes about um basically that there are some people in the orthodox community that are now um bringing lace fronts um to some communities but they're expensive and the fact that they look not like wigs is like making them less appealing to some people mm-hmm um, which both make sense, but it's also like, it's already a wig. <laughs> like, what are the gradations? <laughs> it's a little confusing to me that it's like, we want a wig, we want it to look real, but not too real. Like how those distinctions are are fascinating and confusing to me. And I did think when I was reading this, like, would Rachel have been more happy in like a lace front that doesn't look like a wig to other people? But it sounds like from our conversation, no. Like, she wanted to be really, like, covering her hair made her feel like she was still connected to her ex-husband. And uncovering her hair was a way of severing that connection. Um, So it was about the, almost like the idea of the wig on her head, whatever form it took, versus, like, the actual wig wasn't the problem which I thought was interesting. I'll just toss out there, Tamar, that I probably fall into that like weird gradation that you're talking about where I do own wigs. I don't wear them very often. I wear wigs sort of as formal wear. Like if you see me at a wedding, I'll probably be wearing a wig. Um, But I would not wear a wig that was not identifiable as a wig to people who know that wig means marriage in Judaism. Meaning there's like a whole range of people out there who do not know that. And right. I don't care whether they can tell that my wig is a wig, but I want people in the know, the people who are looking for that symbol to know that I'm covering my hair even when I'm wearing a wig, because otherwise the symbol isn't useful. But that's so interesting because that means that the symbol is actually about like it's not about halakha. Your hair is covered either way. It's about. No, that is the, that is the reason I cover my hair from a halakhic perspective. Um, like I cover my hair because it is my Jewish wedding ring, which is in fact like a halachic consideration that other people should know that I'm married because I'm wearing a hair covering. And so if that symbol is not going to be meaningful to you because you're from outside the community, this isn't a familiar concept, then you may or may not be able to identify that my wig with bangs or my wig, which is a headband fall, I have both kinds, is a wig. Like maybe you can't tell because you're not used to that look. But if you're in a community that knows what that symbol is supposed to mean, then I need you to identify it. Not everybody feels this way. And I would bet tomorrow that there are women in the Orthodox community wearing wigs that you have not been able to identify because um, I would say the Jewish version of this is the kippa fall, which is a hair piece that goes over your hair like a kippa, <laughs> like a yarmulke of wig, and it falls over your hair and your hair is a lot of what people see in addition to the wig. Oh. And this is a more minimalist wig wearing approach that would certainly not be acceptable in Rachel's Haredi community. And I personally would not feel halakhically comfortable wearing a kippa fall. Um, so, but this is so incredibly personal and there are like, 
millions of gradations of how people choose to do this particular practice or not. Um, that even if it's something that I would not personally feel was okay for me, I would never dismiss someone else's choice of hair covering because dude covering your hair is hard Mm -hmm. like this is hard um and it's a really difficult transition and it is hard the morning after your wedding to wake up and look like a different person and look at your husband and have him look exactly freaking the same (laughs) and that is just like a difficult thing um so everybody out there is just getting by the best they can. But I personally wouldn't wear a keep a fall for similar reasons. I probably wouldn't wear a really, really good lace front. I, I think on the other end, what Rachel was describing of every morning waking up and putting on a wig, even though she was no longer connected to this man and that man out there in the world waking up every morning with no visible signs that he had once been married. Um, yeah. Just really reiterated to me both the the emotional and physical burden of putting on a wig for a marriage that no longer exists. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I've also heard similar things from um, widows. You know, if your partner has died and it's not necessarily like, I don't want to be connected to this person anymore, but it is like a very significant change in status in the community. And particularly if you are interested um, in being partnered again, the complexity of still covering your hair is something that I know people struggle with a lot. Also, I just want to shout out this film for teaching me that the woman who started the Basiaco schools never married or had children. I was like, this is like a great um, little piece of feminist information that I did not know. So, and also, that was really cool. Also, I loved that Rachel taught us that like that is not information that you will get at a Basiaco school. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was it was good to know. If this film, if covered up, is coming to a Jewish film festival near you, um, I think we are all in agreement that it is um, well thought out. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. For our second segment, we're going to be talking about um, an episode of This American Life called We Come From Small Places. Um, On October 11th, that's when this uh, We Come From Small Places was aired. And it's an episode about the Labor Day Carnival and the West Indian American Day Parade in Brooklyn. Um, The episode was not hosted by Ira Glass, which is rather unusual for This American Life, um, except for one segment where Ira went into Crown Heights, where the parade takes place, and spoke with Hasidic residents, mostly Chabadniks, about their feelings about the parade. And it's pretty cringy to listen to from a Jewish perspective. Um, And it got a pretty serious backlash from Orthodox and specifically Chabad circles. And so we wanted to talk about kind of our reactions to this segment and to the backlash and kind of what came out of that. So I'm interested in what your reactions were to the piece initially and then to kind of hearing about the backlash. Cringeworthy. He first, in, he first, um, Ira Glass first interviews a young man outside of 770 who is talking about Carnival and the sort of um, the way the women are dressed at the Carnival and the fact that he knows he shouldn't look, but he finds himself looking and it's very uncomfortable for him. And that conversation just felt really icky to me. And I don't think it felt icky because of Ira Glass. I think it felt icky because 
the guy he was interviewing was just awkward about it. Um, I think no fault of his own. He probably doesn't have much language to talk about being confronted by women in suggestive outfits. Um, and so it just came across so icky. Um, the second interview that Ira Glass did was with these two little boys um, selling, I think, popsicles and cookies outside their apartment building. And that one was really heartwarming and very human, um, a very human response to, wow, something big is going on outside our apartment building. Let's like try to interact and maybe make a few pennies. Um, so I guess I understood the backlash, but then when listening to the segment itself, there were a few blips, but it, I, I didn't find it so offensive. I think that the problems from my perspective were less in the way he conducted the interviews and more in the way he framed this foray into Chabad, Lubavitch, Brooklyn. So it was like, okay, we, we wanted to get a perspective from another identifiable ethnic community in this neighborhood, the Chabad Hasidim, who he calls Hasids, which (laughs) makes me like cringe every time, but just (laughs) on a linguistic level. Um, And then the way it's framed is we tried to talk to these people, but it was like trying to talk to aliens from another planet and they were so strange and they look like they're dressed out of 19th century Poland and aren't they so weird and they don't want to talk to reporters and they're just hurrying past the parade without even looking at it as though they're late for an appointment or something. Um, and one guy like gave me this half-hearted quote like, What do you think of the parade? Well, everybody has the right to do whatever they think is best. Anyway, good day. (laughs) And it was it was like, I think this is the thing more than the interviews itself that inspired the backlash is that to talk about any discrete ethnic group anywhere in this like, look at these Martians And why would anyone who, incidentally, I've just described as aliens from another planet, not want to talk to me with my (laughs) microphone? It must be their problem. Mm -hmm. I think that that kind of othering is what people were reacting to. And I think the the first uh, the first backlash piece in the forward or the the one that I saw by Label Baumgarten, who is a member of the Chabad community of Crown Heights was basically focused on that. Like, you would never talk about another ethnic group this way. And look how you talked about us. It's no wonder, like, we've seen this attitude before and people don't want to talk to the press because they've seen this attitude before. Right. So it was more about that, I think. Yeah, I agree. I thought that the issue was much more with the way that Ira Glass framed the community as a whole as he kind of was getting ready to interview and responding to the interviews than with the interviews themselves. I did think the interview with the guy outside of 770 was like extremely cringy and creepy. And I did think that that, to me, that was like a great example of like exactly how to not frame, not not on Ira Glass's part, on this guy whose name, I'm sorry, I don't remember, his part was just like, He's here and he's like trying not to look, but he sometimes fails and looks. And it's just like, 
that framing this as like an issue of looking at other people like just don't look like don't be there if you don't want to look it's just I find that to be so blaming people for dressing in a certain way instead of taking responsibility for your own ability to like literally go in another place so as to not look at it like it's not like someone is chaining him to 770 or that he has to be like outside so I found that to be problematic but I mostly felt like the the interviews were less of a problem than the framing and I have to say that like I follow um Muttle on Twitter who is the like I said Twitter very weirdly just there. Twitter. Uh, <laughs> on Twitter. Um, who is like the Chabad social media guy. And he happens to be married to somebody that I was in a conservative youth group with. And so I know from childhood. And um, I, I am like, because I follow him on Twitter, I see him talk all the time about... Um, anti-Semitism, particularly towards um, Chabadniks and um, the Haredi community, which is something that is not wasn't really on my radar in the way that he frames it um, before I started following him. And it's interesting because it's definitely one of those situations where um, it's been useful and educational for me to um, see his perspective and I think that like I when I first heard this this segment I didn't think like "Ooh, that was like not good job (laughs) class Um, but then I saw him responding to it and I felt like his criticisms were legitimate and I also felt like they were um his criticisms were strong like they were not put particularly gently but they also were not um rude or nasty and ultimately what was kind of fascinating about this is that Ira Glass responded and was like oh I should have done better and I will do better and that was kind of shocking just because like it feels rare to have that kind of like this community was treated inappropriately they respond and the response is like oh sorry we're gonna do better you're right um like that should happen more often than I feel like it does and the whole thing made me feel like I need to pay more attention to this kind of thing and and I was grateful to watch it happen but I also I think that there is a fine line because even though I can I totally see the perspective of Chabadniks being like please don't talk about us like we are literally aliens from another planet which is language that Ira Glass uses but on the other hand I do think that that is a characterization that a lot of people would use in that situation and while that's not an excuse for using it I understand how Ira Glass got there and I think that one of the kind of complexities of writing about the Haredi community is um, not making them seem like aliens, even though their lives are quite different from um, the lives of most people reading the article. Well, here's the thing. The entire rest of the episode 
is a case study in how to do this. This is, I think, an unacknowledged irony because even the response in the forward doesn't really reckon with the fact that actually the entire episode within which this segment appears is about a unique cultural practice of a particular and very visible ethnic group doing something that is like really out there and not an everyday occurrence, like having a humongous parade covered in feathers and rhinestones and wearing bikinis in September in New York when it is not that warm. And there's a segment on uh, a pan drum competition. There's like a segment on the like the vendor for the specific feathers that everybody goes to. Right. This is uh, a particular look at ethnic practices in New York and how people are celebrating and preserving a distinct and visible heritage within the context of a multicultural city. And then like in the middle of that, there was like, oh, but we don't care about these people and their distinct ethnic heritage in this multicultural city. They're crazy. But the rest of this is fascinating and something we want to respect and explore and discuss. And that I just felt like nobody is reckoning with the fact that this is like an incredible and obvious contrast. And one thing that I thought was really interesting, the title of the episode, um, We Come From Small Places, um, there comes from the segment. People are talking about, um, you know, America's big and you can get lost in it. But people, um, you know, from different West Indian countries, we, we come from small places. We're trying to maintain these very specific heritages. You know, do you come from Trinidad? Do you come from Guyana? Um, and there's even a moment where these girls who all live in and were born and raised in Brooklyn are referring to um, the place their family comes from as where they live. Oh, where do you live? And they refer to a place in Trinidad. And then the interviewer is like, all of you live in Brooklyn, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah. But the idea of that and the incredible irony is that Lubavitcher Hasidim are called Lubavitch because Lubavitch is a town in Russia that they are trying to preserve a particular Hasidic culture. And back, like it's just the parallels are incredibly huge and nobody's even looking at them. I will say that I think the difference is that actually the Hasidic community, not just Chabad, but also other Hasidic communities, is visibly Hasidic and different at all times, whereas, um, which makes people think of them at, like, which is just a distinct a, a distinction that is something that people notice at all times and is very intentionally focused on itself and not, I mean, Chabad does a lot of outreach work, but particularly in Crown Heights around 770, like Chabad is really like, that's not really where they're doing a lot of outreach work. They're doing a lot of like focusing inward and making their communities very tight knit. And that is not what's happening in the, um, in the West Indian parade. It's not actually about like, these are communities that are really insular all the time. And they're coming together at this one point at this one place and showing their like communal pride that's like the mitzvah tank parade that happens on Fifth Avenue, I think on the yard side of the Lubavitcher Rebbe every year. Like that is a much closer, that would be the closest parallel. But the thing is, like when you see someone who is 
Hasidic, like you can tell that they're Hasidic basically any time because of how what they're wearing. And that gives people a sense of separation from them. I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I just think that that builds in a sense of difference from people that that I think is what's being responded to in this in this case. Um, and it's interesting, especially in light of what we just talked about with um, hair covering, how much like the the visibility of one's identity to others is so important, both within Jewish communities, but also in this case, like other people are going to absolutely make judgments about you and think of you like like you're not uh, like you're from another planet. And and like that's bad. But also that actually is just like it turns out how humans operate. <laughs> Something in the fact that this says who is Jewish. The the women in his second interview, he's interviewing two women who are from the islands and they say, oh, yeah, we grew up in this apartment building. We always got along with the Orthodox Jews. This was part of our everyday life. No big deal. It's Ira Glass who's doing the othering. Um, the, everybody else in the segment doesn't seem to. Well, but the guy outside of 770 is othering the people in the parade. And I think that the little boys right. selling the like ice water or whatever I don't know. are pretty clearly viewing the people in the parade as not. I mean, othering is not quite the right the right word for it, but it's not a. There's some judgment in in it as well. I think that you can recognize people as distinct without being dismissive, and there's right. a way to navigate that. I, I think also that the the two women that say, oh, we never had any problems with the Orthodox people in our apartment building. It's possible they doth protest too much. Like they do say that six or seven times in the span of <laughs> like three sentences or something. Um, and so the point is not that there were problems that they're denying, because I mean, how would I know? But that they seem to know that you might assume that. Um and it's not as though right. these are not distinct groups that don't have a lot of social overlap. I'm sure that that is true. Um, and the guy that Iris speaks to in 770, the Chabad headquarters, um, like to the extent that he's going to interact with the parade, I don't think there's any possibility that he's going to do anything other than spectate or not spectate. Like clearly he's not a part of this experience, right? So it's a parade. Um, it's a parade, right? But there are spectators. So I don't right. think that that in and of itself is um, like, I don't think recognizing that these are distinct groups is a problem. Um, the question is, um, are they like afforded equal respect? I also think that there's an interesting undercurrent about whether people are um, afraid of each other. So towards the beginning um, of the episode, not in any way related to the segment with the um, with the Hasidic population, there's a discussion of how like there's a lot of police protection and, um, you know, do you have a gun in your bag and how the um, the people in the parade are not feeling like 
great and appreciative of that. They're feeling like there's violence around communities every day and you're showing up and sort of blaming it on our celebration of our heritage in a way that is like not justified or specific to this. And this is sort of echoed later in the episode where when Ira is interviewing the two little Lubavitch boys outside their apartment building, they say they don't like the parade because it's really loud, which seems to be an indisputable fact. Um, and then he says, is there anything else you don't like about it or something like that? And they say, well, you know, it also is scary or something that they're afraid of violence. And there's this sort of like kind of sweet, but kind of not sweet moment where the seven year old reveals that he has a pair of scissors on him. These are like elementary school safety scissors. Um, to defend himself in case anybody comes at him with a knife. Now, Ira portrays this as like kind of a adorable but absurd concern. And the listener to the episode will probably remember back to the in the early moment in the episode where people participating in the parade are upset at the insinuation that there may be violence. But there's no contextualization of what, Tamar, you were talking about earlier, which was that there actually have been stabbings of Chabad Hasidim in Brooklyn not that long ago and the idea that you might have a bunch of people not from your neighborhood in a loud and chaotic environment when in fact there have been stabbings of people in your community like that's not actually crazy and it's not an adorable little fear it's not monsters under the bed and I just that was lacking in the moment I think yeah I think I have more work to do on how I kind of think about this um this kind of reporting. I was very troubled by the fact that this, that the kid was saying that he had scissors and it was made kind of, it was made light of, but also like it does suggest that the people coming from the parade are dangerous to him, which frankly struck me as quite racist. Um, and like, I think you're right. There are, there, (laughs) it could be racist. And also like in this case, based in, uh, a real, fear that people in his community have but I found it upsetting and I also was kind of surprised at kind at the degree to which it was unexplored um and made light of right and I don't disagree with you that there's also evidence that he's probably hearing Mm -hmm. racist messages about who's likely to do stabbing um and the kinds of things that one should be afraid of I just like you said it's it's really unexplored yeah. Um, I guess, like, in a way, the a good thing about this is that, like, because there was a relatively quick backlash, although it wasn't, like, frankly, I didn't know anything. If I wouldn't have been following Matel on Twitter, I wouldn't have known about this backlash. It wasn't something that was, like, a big deal in my social media world. Um and I didn't know until I started doing research for this segment that Ira Glass had actually responded and apologized. So, um, like, on the one hand, that's great. On the other hand, I don't know, it seems like there's an, an opportunity to think more um, about about reporting about the Haredi community. And something that, um, in particular, I think about a lot is I know that Matel talks a lot about uh, on Twitter about ultra-Orthodox being a slur for his community and I was really interested when we were talking with Rachel earlier that she I like referred to herself as ultra-Orthodox several times 
Um, so it's clearly one of those term, and I don't, I have not historically thought of ultra orthodox as a as a slur, um, and I think that the conversations about like what terms are okay to use and what terms are not okay to use within um, the Jewish community are still kind of evolving, and um, I think like the Jewish press is not necessarily engaging. I haven't heard a lot of conversations about exactly like how can we respectfully cover um, the Haredi world, um, and I am interested in in that particularly because there is there has been an uptick in instances of anti-Semitism and violence against um, Haredi in New York and other places, and so it seems like we need to have this conversation, and um, people in those communities should have respectful um, coverage of their communities. And I, I wish there was a little bit more of that. Should we continue with endorsements? Sure. All right. Zahava, what do you have to endorse? So I would like to endorse a collection of photographs uh, that you can find in the New York Public Library's digital collections online. Um the collection is called the Ethiopian Hebrews series. Um, and I think that the collection of photographs might actually um, belong to the Jewish Museum. So these are photographs by Alexander Alland in um, taken in 1940. It's a series of photographs that um, that document the worship and learning of a community of black Jews in Harlem um, in the early 40s, um, which is the peak of this community, which is called um, the Commandment Keepers Ethiopian Hebrew Congregation. Um, I know nothing more about the Commandment Keepers other than what you can find in the Wikipedia article, but this is a community that was really at its height when these photographs were taken, um, that sees itself as descendants of and successors of um, the lost tri- one of the lost tribes of Israel um, in Ethiopia. And they claim to be descended from King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And they have, as documented in these photographs, pretty standard, what you might think of as pretty standard Sephardic practice. The photographs are really beautiful and very evocative and really interesting just visually. And it's just beautiful to see this community at prayer and learning. Um, And some of it is like, it's cool to see a Jewish community in the 1940s. Some of it is that it's cool to see what looks familiar and what doesn't, um, what practices we would recognize today and what don't. Um, And so you see like children, learning from Hebrew books. You see a bar mitzvah boy reading from the Torah. You see both men and women at prayer. Um, and what's interesting is because the men have kippot and, um, and they're wearing talitot, they're wearing prayer shawls, that, um, that is a very familiar look, whereas the women are dressed like women who are going to worship in 1940. So in a way, like my association with this image is they look like church ladies to me. Um, but, you know, how much of that is just what I expect, um, what I like, how much 1940s American shul going have I really seen photographed? And so this is a really um, 
really beautiful look um, mm. at this particular congregation. So we'll link to the collection of um, photographs in the show notes, as well as an article um, by Antoine Sargent, who was invited by the Jewish Museum to write about this collection for Black History Month last year in 2018. Um, So just his um, closing words, which I really appreciated, were that um, Alan's pictures resist easy stereotypes to show a fuller depiction of Harlem that offer up another side of the history that sits, the, that sits at the intersection of Jewish and black identity, as well as religious tradition. It's the story of a community within a community, a history within a history. So I just stumbled upon these photographs like down an internet rabbit hole. I don't even know how I found them, um, but they are beautiful and really interesting and I commend them to everybody. That sounds really good. Yeah, I'm excited to look at them. Sounds wonderful. Mimi, what do you have to endorse? Um, So I want to endorse a bit of fluff that I really enjoyed. Um, I've been watching a lot of Great British Bake Off. um, And there was a recent article in Hey Alma called What If the Great British Baking Show Had a Jewish Week? Or it's... um, sort of imagines the three different challenges um, that would be Jewish in nature on this really awesome um, British baking show. So I totally enjoyed that. And I think it's a fun bit of fluff um, for, well, we're (laughs) recording this on a Sunday, which is when my internet diet is most fluffy. So a fun bit of fluff for a Sunday. And then I also just wanted to put out a question to some of our listeners. I feel a little bit like um, Zahava, when it came out that Zahava had never made challah, I have never been in a Rosh Chodesh group before, and I'm joining one starting um, in a couple of weeks, I think. Um, and we are sort of coming up with what we want this Rosh Chodesh group to look like, what we want to be doing. Are we um, starting to dive into some text together? What will that look like? Um, more discussion or is it more sort of tangible making things together? So if our listeners are in Rosh Chodesh groups or have been um, or have a, a vision of what a really great Rosh Chodesh monthly women's group would look like, um, let me know what, what that is. And cool. I'd just love I have to hear tried and failed to begin a Rosh Chodesh group quite recently. So <laughs> I, I don't think I have any real tips. <laughs> I have two (laughs) endorsements. I have a musical endorsement, which is um, a melody for Ein Kitzba, which is part of the Kedusha in Musaf High Holidays. And and it's a melody that I got to know at Hadar. It's originally Mozart's, I think that's how you pronounce it, melody. And I'm kind of obsessed with it. And I sing it now like all the time to myself. And so I recommend that melody. I will link to it. on our show notes page. And I also wanted to endorse an article from The New Yorker called The Message of Measles. A public health official confront the largest, it should be confronts, the largest outbreak in the U.S. in decades. They've been fighting as much against dangerous ideas as they have against the disease by Nick Palmgarten. Um, and it specifically talks about the Haredi community um, and their issues around um, vaccination for measles in a way that I thought was um, 
respectful while also like not giving it any concessions to to any ideas of anti-vaccination, which I really appreciated. So I think it's really sensitive approach to the Haredi world and the writing I thought is quite good as it usually is in the New Yorker. So I will um, link to that in the show notes as well. Awesome. We can use some exemplars of that kind of coverage. So apropos of our second segment. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like to discuss on a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, or on our website, jpmedia.co, choose Talking and Chill from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really nice way of showing support for us and making sure that we're able to continue to bring you new episodes. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you, Zahava. It was great to see you guys. Yeah, I really appreciated all of our conversations this month, especially. And uh, it's just really nice to connect with both of you. So see you next month.